At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn? And when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm gonna choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. When I met my guest, I was blown away by his approach to life. What Brendan Kumarasamy may lack in years, he makes up for in his ability to make an impact. And he does this because of the knowledge and the wisdom that he's collected and built up from a very, very young age. Because while most of his peers were busy consuming Netflix and living that party lifestyle, he was voraciously listening to podcasts from legends like Lewis Howes and Seth Godin and so many others. And the result is he is a wealth of knowledge. He is a wealth of insights. Brendan found his calling as a communications and public speaking expert when he realized that there was no one out there like him who was giving away valuable lessons for free. And as you'll hear, he honed his craft through this unique experience of speaking and presenting to executives, high-level executives for some of the most successful companies on the planet through this thing called case competitions. More on this in the show because Brendan describes exactly what those are. Brendan is one of those people that you meet and you quickly realize that there's an it factor. There's that something special. And I know he's destined to leave his mark on the world. We explored so much during our interview that I've actually broken it up into two parts. Part one, this one is all about belief system. If I were to boil it down, it's really about understanding who we are and why we were put here. At its core, what Brendan believes is success is the result of our ability to ask ourselves difficult questions. And so we explore this concept in great detail. And I think the result is that you'll walk away with some perspective and insights that are truly life-changing. If you like this episode, you'll like part two in which we dissect what makes a great speaker. You can also check out his YouTube channel, Master Talk, where he provides valuable lessons to anyone that wants to step up their game as a speaker and communicator. Having this conversation was such a treat, and I don't want to build it up anymore, so let's dive straight in to the conversation. Brendan Kumarasamy, welcome to Inside Out. 
Thanks, Phil. It's great to be on. Hey, man, we were just talking before the show, and I think there's a mutual excitement, and I, I'm grateful that you're excited to be on this show. I'm going to say I'm more excited to have you on. When we first met, I was blown away by everything about you. One of the things that I didn't know at the time was the fact that not only that you speak three languages, but you can karaoke in eight languages. What are those eight languages, man? <laughs> That's a great way of starting the conversation. Though. So I speak English, French, and Tamil. But I can also karaoke in Japanese, Korean, Mandarin, Spanish, and Hindi. So yeah, it's pretty bizarre uh, talent of mine, I guess. Man, have you ever done all eight in the same night? Whoa, that's like the million dollar question. I think I've done four or five. I don't think I've done the full eight though, but now you're inspiring me to do that. So I think- Oh man, you got a video of that. That's a YouTube video right there. (laughs) Eight karaoke songs in eight languages. So, okay, you- have done a lot of podcasts. You've obviously had a lot of success on YouTube, but I think one thing stood out as I did my research and you're in the top 1% of League of Legends players and team-based. Tell me about that, dude. (laughs) You're asking some interesting questions. So how League of Legends works for those who don't know, it's back in the day anyways, when I was playing it, this was maybe five, six years ago. League of Legends was the game in the same way Fortnite is today. Everyone would play League. In the same way, if you were like a, a jock in, high, in university, you would get like more status. That was us with League of Legends. And actually, what's funny is both of those things, karaoke and League of Legends, is actually very well tied in. Because a lot of people who play League of Legends, well, are Asian. And a lot of those people do karaoke. And that's how I found out about karaoke instead of doing other events. But yeah, I was, I was a very competitive League of Legends player. So like how the echelons work, the ranking system is you have bronze, silver, gold, platinum, diamond. And diamond was like the top 1% of all the players in the game. And then you have master, where there's like 500 people in the world in that rank. And then you have challenger, which is the top 200 players in the world. So I got to diamond. And then instead of going for the next thing, I said, you know, maybe I should do something else with my life. So I dropped out of the <laughs> game after I got done. But yeah, the, this idea of competition has always been a common thread throughout my life. I was going to ask about that. So I'm glad you brought it up. Where does that come from? I think it's more of just the, the nature of who I am. Like uh, one example that comes to mind, I guess, is probably because like my father, he was an alcoholic and I didn't always feel that connection from him. And I never really liked him for most of my life. So I always wanted to beat him. I always wanted to prove him that I was right and that I could be a, a big success in my life. So I think that competitive spirit came a lot from that. But it also came from just this, I don't know why I just feel alive when I'm up against somebody else. Like I give you the best example, Michael Jordan's documentary, which I'm sure you've watched. Most people who haven't, by the way, if you haven't seen The Last Dance, something you need to look at. If you have seen it, most people who see it go, wow, this guy is insanely competitive. He's crazy. And I look at the guy and I'm just taking notes. I was like, this is exactly how I live Mm. life. This is perfect. I've always been competitive and I enjoy that part about me. Well, top performers, that's a common thread is that they have this competitive spirit that is unrelenting, that is, it is sort of otherworldly. And when somebody who's not that competitive sees it, they're like, holy cow, that's just off the charts. Curious though, you mentioned your father and I know a little bit about the backstory there. I know you forgave him and at some point said, even though he wasn't there for you, that you were willing to be at peace with that. When did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. It actually happened last year when he passed away. I think for me, the big lesson there is life is always a series of perceptions, Billy. 
you can look at the same story that someone has been through and interpret it in completely different ways. Mm-hmm. So one side of the coin is, oh, you know, he did this to me and that to me and life sucks. So I'm just going to do the same thing as he did. Or you take the other interpretation, which is how do I not repeat the same mistakes? How do I look at this person's life and say, how do I do differently? And to be honest, Billy, there's a lot of things that I'm grateful for from my dad. And the biggest one was he gave me a chance to play in Canada. Being born in a first world country is insane. Like when I really think about my life in reverse, and I know you're going to hate me for saying this, but a lot of successful people, when they look at their life, they go, oh man, I was so lucky. Right? I was just born. I had just happened to be born in the mid 90s you know, in a first world country like Canada. And then case, these weird business competitions I was doing started to get really popular in the early 2000s. A lot of people entered the system. And then because they were the best business students in the world, pretty much, they all became like vice presidents in their early 30s. Mm-hmm. And then when I entered the program in 2015, everyone who was coaching me were literally the best executives, like people like you, right? Who were these presentation, like crazy people. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones training me. So all of this is a series of serendipitous events. But going back to my father, I think the the big lesson I got from him is don't waste the opportunity I gave you. Mm. Right? Don't waste it. I gave it to you. And that is the greatest gift he ever gave me. Well, yeah, you've talked about that before. And I'm, I was really taken by your appreciation for the fact of what you have and not squandering it. Because I think... What some people don't have is an appreciation for what you have. Some people don't even have that. And so I get chills even saying it because somebody that's multi-generation, been in Canada or the United States, they maybe don't even realize what they have as a result of where they have been born and the opportunity that's in front of them. What you said there was so important about this idea of appreciating our perspective. So I have this saying in life, which is the following perspective frees us from the chains of constant complaining. If you understand what perspective has and what, how the game is actually being played, then the chains that you have of complaining about everything that life has to offer just fall apart. And that's a great segue into martial arts because martial arts taught me to never complain about anything. And what's fascinating, which is kind of random because my video this Sunday is about that experience, is this whole idea that each belt that you do, and by the way, I'm, I'm always transparent. I, I didn't really like doing karate. It's just the lessons that I got from it was really important to me. So every belt had its own lesson. So orange was about defeat. So they would tell us at the end of the test that, hey, by the way, you didn't pass. And at the end, they would give us our belt. Or blue was about courage. So they would pretty much smoke us for six hours and just say, this is what it takes to get your black belt. And most people quit karate after blue. I just quit because I just didn't like doing it, but I I could have made it to black if I wanted to. But I think the key lesson that I got there was discipline, how to do something consistently, how to do it well, and how to have a very high standard for excellence. So when I used that martial arts and the skills that I got there, even if I'm not very strong, I was able to leverage that experience and then play it into what I did after in life. Hmm. What was high school like for you and childhood? And I know one of the things that you you highlight, and I don't know if this is your least favorite subject or what, it kind of surprised me. You said you weren't that much into history. I, I figured you would be into history, or maybe it was maybe it was, that was just an example that you were giving for this particular thing, which you, you highlight one of the things that school does is sort of tarnish our ability to speak in public without fear, 
And we'll get into the speaking part of what you do, which is a, obviously a huge component of your brand and of everything you're doing to empower people to use the art of communication. But I'm curious, what was the foundation for you as a youth and how did that prepare you for who you are today? Yeah, for sure. So, so when I was in high school, or I guess childhood, a good way of starting that off is by talking about my first day of school. You know, I grew up in a city called Montreal. And for those who don't know, Montreal is one of the few cities in the world where French, in other words, what I'm trying to say is many languages are spoken in that city. And French is one of them where you just need to know how to speak it. So my parents looked at me and they said, well, buddy, you got to learn the language. So they threw me into a French education system, which of course I'm very grateful for. But the in-between to be grateful and not be grateful was uh, was a tough one. So when I was in grade one, not only was I uncomfortable with presentations, I had to present in a language I didn't even know. So I'd look at the crowd and just go, uh, bon, sure. And that was my life. But luckily for me, it turns out a lot of the Canadian kids are really nice. You know, I never had much bullying growing up, so everyone's really nice to me. <laughs> darn, darn Canadians. Yeah, they're just really nice. You know, a lot of people they we always they always their stories tend to go, you know, I got bullied. I probably got bullied maybe once or twice in my life. It was like a spat. For the most part, I would say life was really good growing up, minus, you know, the dysfunctional family. But communication was definitely something I always struggled with in a presentation setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think most people do. You always hear this communication. The only thing people fear as much or maybe even more than death is public speaking. So you did these things called case competitions, which I think a lot of people don't know what they are. But for you, you got really deep into them. And that was a a big part of your journey and of your story. Not only were you actively participating, but you were coaching people on how to excel in these competitions. The people flew in from all over the world to be a part of them. And to your point earlier is you had the best of the best giving you guidance, feedback, and even sponsoring these events. For those that don't know, what am I talking about? And tell us a little bit about maybe your first time doing one all the way to through maybe the last few that you did. Like what happened in between those? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm happy to set the context. So the idea of the case competition is simple. Think of it like the feeder school of all of the best executives that are going to be really successful in life in their early 30s. So in the same way, you would go to like a Harvard to have a status, a symbol of status to say, oh, you should take me and get me into companies like McKinsey or IBM or Deloitte. Case competitions is that it type of environment, but for the world. So essentially what happens is a business gives you a problem. So we take Tesla, your background, you know, Elon comes up to you and goes, how do I recruit? all of the best people to come to my company, mm. you know, Billy, what do we do? So this is an example of a business problem. So what we need to do as a team is in three hours, we need to read the entire prompt. So I've done a case on Tesla in the past, not to the actual board though. And it was like, you know, three hours, you got to read the whole document. We got to figure out a solution, do financial statements, do a bunch of stuff. And then at the end of the three hours, we need to present our solution back to the executives in some cases. Usually it's faculty, but at international level competitions, it's the actual executives of the company. So just to give you an idea, Walmart was a sponsor of one of these competitions. This is a couple of years after I, I graduated. Very, I was mentoring a team there. And the person who's giving the case was not a manager of a store at Walmart. It was the senior vice president of Walmart Canada. So literally the president and you got wow. him. Right? And you have to keep in mind, just so people understand the context, we were in the, our early 20s and we're presenting to this guy. 
And we're up against some of the best universities around the world, right? So schools from Thailand, Singapore, Germany, they would fly out from around the world, spend thousands of dollars to get here just to give PowerPoint presentations. And that was the crazy life that I signed up for. So why did I start these case competitions? The reason is because I wanted to get a job. My goal was to be like you. Right, I want to be an executive by 30, make be like a senior partner at IBM or something or at McKinsey. And case competitions was my feeder school to get into those opportunities because most of my friends are investment bankers. They work in very high-level executive positions, even if they're fairly young. So I started competing. And little did I know, I became insanely obsessed with it. So when I did my first case competition, I was had like my oversized suit or something I had for because I know money. <laughs> right, 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 right. I love it. I love it. I would, do you have a picture of that, by the way? I, mean, I do. I do. Actually, amazing. I'm happy to okay. send it to you. It's really funny. <laughs> I use it a lot of my kids. I have like an oversized tie that stretches out like long after just the waist. Let's just put it out. <laughs> it's just really, it's like nobody told me. So anyways, uh, one of the first case competitions I did was for this Canadian packaging company. And essentially what we needed to do as a team was we needed to figure out how to repackage a sort of cream. So, you know, coffee cream that you use like for your coffee. Sure. But this type of cream was cream that is shelf stable. So what does that mean? It means that you can put it on a shelf and still use it. But the challenge with the case, hence why it was difficult, is most Canadians and Americans would never buy shelf-stable cream. Let's say you go to a supermarket and you buy cream, you usually get it from the fridge, right? You open up a fridge, you take the cream, you bring it back home. But in Europe, this shelf-stable cream is much cheaper to manufacture and also a lot easier to keep because it stays a lot longer. So that was a huge challenge. How do you convince Canadians to buy coffee cream that's like not on the refrigerator? But anyways, I'll skip the details. The point of that case was simple. We sucked. But we had so much energy. Like, they loved us so much. I remember I, I walked in there the first time. This is like my second case competition. I had like a big ego. I thought it was the best. And I was in my oversized suit. And then the presentation starts. And they always introduce the judges first. And so the person in the back goes, before we let this team start, allow the judges to introduce themselves. So they start getting up. And the, the guy goes, let's say, I don't know, John, let's call him John Travolta, whatever. Manager at packaging company and then the next person comes up you know julia rose uh, senior manager at you know, let's call it uh, i don't know uh, magic right and then the third person gets up and goes my name is nick and i'm the managing partner for the country and we're just looking at her like uh, the managing partner for the country. And I'm 19 at this point. <laughs> and I'm just like, uh, okay. So as we present with a bunch of energy and then we made it to the finals, it was a lot of fun. But yeah, that was my first case. I love that, man. And it just shows that passion and excitement and enthusiasm plays a big role in making your, helping to make your message shine through. And despite the fact that you you weren't perfect, right? You were in your prom suit, probably made a, a bunch of mistakes. It was your first one ever, but you made up for that because of just the raw emotion of it all. As you transitioned out of that period of your life, you landed a job at IBM as a technology consultant. And you know you had a few options. You could have even had even more options because to your point, this is really a feeder program of sorts for all the main companies, right? Bain and company, you've mentioned a bunch already, but you went to IBM. While there, 
you, you realize and ask yourself an important question, which is how do you use your time and expertise to make an impact on the world, which ultimately led to you starting your company and YouTube channel, Master Talk, which is really about helping people communicate in a way that will help them share their ideas in a way that will be meaningful. Knowing all that, why did you feel that that was the direction you felt most compelled to go? Is it because you had that experience as your backdrop or is it because you know there was a need in the marketplace? Great question. It's definitely a mix of both. So let me explain the back end. So the back end is three years later after I'd competed, I'd probably done like 50 case competitions and presented hundreds of times, coached a bunch of people. And then I got to that last semester. But there was one question, Billy, that everyone kept asking me that I never had a good answer to. The question was, Brendan, how did you learn how to speak? The short answer is, is I didn't really know. I didn't have money for, even for Toastmasters, that's how poor I was, I didn't even have the money for that, though I recommend it for those who are listening. It's a great place to get started with public speaking. I didn't even have the money for that. So I had a bunch of people that were really exceptional presenters that would teach me how to present, and I would teach them, and we kind of learned like that. And then over time, as I matured in the program, the new kids on the block, I was training on communication, so they would go out there and win gold medals around the world in, in those competitions. But after the seventh person, the 10th person, the 15th person asked me that question, and I had a couple of months to kill before work, to be honest. And one thing I want to point out here, in this point of time, like it's this is uh, January 2019, December 2018-ish, I never wanted to be a YouTuber, right? This was not something I wanted to be full-time, which was literally last year. But I was just uh, going to start at IBM in April. I'm going to be a senior executive, probably the youngest at the firm, by like 28 or 29. Like That's what I had my sights on. I'd pretty much practiced my whole life for this moment, but I had a couple of months to kill, so why not? So I started watching a bunch of these YouTube videos. Obviously not going to name names, but let's just say I was vomiting in my mouth the entire time. I was like, this is terrible. You have people with PhDs. People have so much expertise in communication, but didn't know things are super simple. Like an example I can give you is this question. How would the world change if you were an exceptional communicator? This is an empowering question we can ask ourselves to think about communication as a way to make a difference. But nobody was asking the question. That's simple. We can have a whole hour just me breaking down all the mistakes in the industry. But basically, I got so frustrated, even if I knew I didn't want to be a YouTuber, that I just said, ah, I might as well just make videos in my basement with no money and no budget and a phone. And that's what I did. So I took my phone out and MasterTalk started like this. Uh, so, uh, hi guys. Uh, my name is Brendan. I'm the founder. It just kept going week after week after week. Then I was a couple of months into it. I started working at IBM and man, it was amazing. The guys flying out to Toronto. They were like paying my lunch. It was like they were crazy. I was like, what is happening here? Right. You're used to this because you're a big executive guy. But like when I was getting started, I was like, whoa, people pay for lunches. It's nuts. So I was in this cycle. I was really happy. But I was lacking that game. After case competitions ended, similar to when a professional athlete retires from a sport, they lose the chase. There's no game anymore. The only game left for me to play, really, is to just keep getting promoted. And it wasn't helping other people. It, wasn't, it was great. I mean, it's a great company to work for. But it wasn't super fulfilling. It wasn't the same game, that same fire of going up against other universities and just tearing them apart. Right? I just loved it. When I kept thinking about Master Talk, I kept thinking of what if that could be the new game. But I also realized 
or else at least I thought at the time, anyways, that it was a stupid idea. I was like, I was making videos in my basement with the phone. I had no money. So what made the difference when I was at like 15 or 16 subscribers is that I knew all of those people. So and a lot of them would come up to me and say, Hey Brendan, you gotta like make more of these videos. I would say, come on, stop being nice with me. But the reason they kept saying that, Billy, is because they kept saying that the content was new. That's what gave me the conviction to keep pushing. And then in September, I knew I could go full-time with this, and then I never looked back. Well, you know, it's funny that all this talent exists out there that are fantastic communicators, yet as you pointed out, and as I definitely agree most of them are either unwilling or haven't, for whatever reason, put out any free content to share their wisdom, to share their expertise. Why? Why isn't that happening? So many reasons. Some that frustrate me, but some that are legitimate. So let's start with the legitimate ones first. It makes sense, Billy. The reason is because great communicators, people who are really good at this, usually don't teach it. The reason is because they become presidents, politicians executives of companies, different types of individuals, because public speaking is a highly monetizable skill. Any leader of any community, whether you're running a nonprofit, whether you're a CEO of a big company, or you're just someone who's leading a volunteer group, that's where you transfer your communication skills to. Which means, Billy, there's only a very small percentage of people who can communicate and teach others how to do it effectively because it's such a vague subject to begin with. But within that tiny group of people, now we get into the frustrating reasons, right? Not the legitimate ones anymore, is most of those people don't share their content for free. Why? Because public speaking coaching is very profitable. If you have 10 executive clients, right? And they pay you what? 10, 20, 30K packages a year to coach them. That's your business. That's it. You work 10 hours a week, you get paid $1,000 an hour, and that's your life. It's simple. So everyone who's better than me at communication coaching or just as good as me, I'd probably put myself in the 5% right now. So we'll see where it goes. But that idea, those people, none of them share free content because they make very good money. And I'm not saying I don't, right? I'm not an exception to the rule. I do really well myself financially. But I think the difference that frustrated me is is this, this idea that, hey, if I'm making good money here, what about the people who couldn't afford me? I mean, just four years ago, the reason I became, I guess, relatively woke, that's the term I'll use for this, is because of people like you, or more specifically, the people that came before us, Lewis Howes, Jordan Harbinger, people who share information for free. So now 17 and 18 couldn't afford Lewis's $100,000 mastermind. He had free content, and I just ate it up. And that's how I accumulated all the knowledge that I have today. And if it wasn't for guys like him or gals like them, I would not be the person I am today. So it frustrated me. It actually really pissed me off that a lot of people in this space weren't sharing that openly and freely for people to learn from. Like, what, Who's taking care of the seven-year-old girl in Cambodia or the 15-year-old girl in high school in Utah who wants to run a nonprofit? It, it just boggled my mind that nobody was doing it. So I just got really pissed off and took action on it. I love that you took action, man. And the world is grateful and will continue to be more grateful. Let's talk about confidence for a moment because you boil down confidence into two parts. What are those two parts? Absolutely. So the first part is the easy one that we all know. So preparation. If you prepare more than everyone else, you'll succeed. I'll use myself as an example here. So I started Mass Talk when I was 22, Billy, and I started coaching executives when I was 23. 
So obviously, who in the world am I to coach them? So where does that confidence stem from? One is definitely prep. Yeah, sure, you know, I don't have the age, but I definitely have the practice. You know, I've done this hundreds of times over and over and over again, like clockwork. And with that confidence, it gives you that credibility to say, okay, let me be wise here in this moment. Let me transform you in this specific skill that I happen to know a bit more about. That's part one. And that applies for any of your ideas. You have a cupcake recipe. You love to cook. It doesn't really matter what the idea is. So that's one part of it, prep. But the other part that nobody talks about, and no, it's not breathing. It's not drinking a glass of water or power posing your way to success. I hate all that stuff. But rather, a belief system. What do you actually believe in? What are you actually going to stand for? Once again, was I scared of those executives? Was I worried? Was I anxious? Absolutely. So why did I coach them anyways? Why did I still deliver the results? Not because I woke up one morning and faked it till I make it, or made it rather, but I told myself instead that, wait a second, I need these financial resources because girls like Julia and guys like Robert who can't afford me, who are in high school, need me. So I need to show up for those executives so I can use those resources to make better content for everyone else to learn from. That is not drinking a glass of water. That's having something worth fighting for. And the question you need to ask yourself to figure this out is simple. Who suffers from your inability to take action every single day? Every single day you wake up and you don't do the thing, you don't do the podcast, you don't do the YouTube channel, what is the consequence of that? Who are you actually hurting? Most people's ultimatum, Billy, is the following, or rather choice to make things easy. Choice A or option A is do the podcast, share the recipe about cupcakes, do the thing. Option B is watch Netflix. For me, and I would argue you, option A is do the Master Talk video, do the Inside Out podcast, or option B, watch millions of people like Julia suffer around the world. And not just girls like her, but the millions of people that will come after me after I'm gone. Every day Brendan doesn't take action on Master Talk, I am potentially hurting tens of millions of lives. Trust me, when you got that type of a belief system, confidence just comes on its own. Mm, what a powerful perspective and way to think about what you do every day and how it matters because it not just matters to the person who it directly impacts, it maybe matters and actually quite definitely matters to the person that they impact. So it's like, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're the tens of millions is not an unreasonable number when you think about humanity and and frankly, as you said, having that strong of a belief system and knowing what matters most to the people that you're sharing this with and the empowerment that you're giving them by giving them this gift of communication of being able to exchange and share ideas through storytelling, through public speaking, through the art of communication. I'm glad you talked about belief system because I want to double click on that. You believe that the top 1% of people have one thing in common and that is a powerful belief system. And one of the things you say is that people, you can have a choice. You can either be insane or be the same. And I love that, man. I love that. I love that you talk about why you should be controversial, why you should stand for something. And, and that the best founders, the 
the most prolific and most game-changing figures of our lifetimes, the thing they have in common is they have a strong, a rock-solid point of view and belief system. When did you come to realize that, one? And two, how does one develop that? Dude, beautiful question. Love it. So how do we develop a belief system and how did I do it? Because the difference between me and everyone else, Billy, I'm not smarter, not more special, and not more unique. I just asked more questions. A good way of summarizing this thought is the following. The quality of your life is solely determined by the quality of the questions you're willing to ask yourself, period. So when I was 21, I wrote my own funeral speech. And every single day, I, and I recommend this as a habit for everyone, not meditation or yoga, but asking yourself one difficult question. I'll give you some examples. What are you pretending not to know? If you had all the money in the world, how would you spend your time? And if you died tomorrow, what would you want your funeral speech to say about you and who you stood for and what you stood for in this life? But since I asked hundreds of these questions, whether it was Lewis Howes' Three Truths or Peter Thiel's What is the truth that you believe in that most people disagree with you on? Question after question after question. And I realized the following, that you will come to realize when you've asked that many questions, that every rule is made up. Society conditions us to have two and a half kids, not two kids, but two and a half, to have a white picket fence and two cars, preferably Teslas. I'm just kidding about that part. But the idea is everything that we do is made up by somebody else. And once you realize that, you start to make your own rules. And the day that you start to make your own rules is the day that you stand for something, you develop a belief system, or as I like to call it, you stop being the same and you start being insane. Mm, Drop the mic, bro. It's hard for me to do because I can't actually take the headset. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. Don't actually drop the mic. Okay. What we've talked about here and specifically what you've talked about, which I think is a huge insight is the, the difference between people that are successful and those that aren't is, are the people that are successful, the top 1%, they aren't afraid to ask themselves hard questions every single day. And you suggest that be a daily habit. And it's not dismissing all of the generic boilerplate habits that every other person who's asked on a podcast that you write in a journal, that you meditate, that you wake up early. All those things are great. Those are like costs to get in the door. What you're saying, let's take it a step further and let's ask those hard questions. And so I'm going to ask you to enter the lightning round and I want to see how many of those questions we can get out of you. So let's go. So you gave me like four or five. Give me some more, man. I'm going to count. And you have hundreds, but I'm not suggesting you need to go through a hundred. But what are some other ones? Because these are so valuable. I've paused long enough. Hopefully I've built enough time for you. And we did not prepare this. So I'm putting you on the spot, man. What are some other difficult questions? And I'll do a tally. Um, I think we're at four or five. So we'll say we're at five. So let's go for number six. Of course, man. Of course. I'm happy to to try as many as I can. So here's one. So definitely Lewis's. So let's expand on his. Because his question is what really started this whole thing for me. So the question he asks, it's it's very long form, but I'll, but I'll say it anyways. It's called the three truths. So the question he asks every guest on the show is the following. Let's assume 
that you accomplished everything that you did in life, Billy. You know, you got this amazing family. Inside Out became the number one podcast in the world. Everyone is screaming your name. You have every book, every podcast, everything you want. You got to shake hands with Elon Musk and everything. And then... I already, already did that one, but okay. Okay, cool. You killed it, man. Do this. I should be interviewing you. It's amazing. Anyways, okay, you get to call him your best friend. There you go. Oh, no, no, he's like, he's, he, when people ask Elon Musk the number one inspiration of his life, he's going to be like, Billy Samoa. <laughs> okay. Anyways, okay, I'm going to start PS. But anyways, the point is, <laughs> it's your last day, right? And it's time to go. Let's assume it's 100 years from now. You're going to live a long, healthy life. But unfortunately, for some reason we don't really understand, everything that you did, this podcast, the books that you wrote, the, the screaming crowds, everyone forgets you. And the messages and the books, everything disappears. But luckily for you, before you go, there's a paper next to you with a pen. You get to write down three things that you believe to be true about the world and life. What would you write down as the three truths? And those are the lessons that we'll keep from you. Mm. That's one. So second one I'll repeat again is Peter Thiel's question. What is the truth that you believe in that most people disagree with you on? Why are we saving up for retirement at 65 when Steve Jobs had access to all the best doctors in the world that at 56? Right? And and questions like like that's a good example or or rather another one I like is what does your perfect day look like from Lewis as well. So perfect day is where you write down excruciating details what that day looks like. So this is just an example of many of the questions I like to ask. What does your actual definition of happiness look like? So most people, when they think about happiness and this definition, they don't think to write their own. So what does it actually look like? What, what are the lists? What are the tactics? That's another one that comes to mind. Oh, here, now, now it's really Now we're starting to play. Because uh, no one's asked you this. So it's great. Who would you have dinner with? And what would you ask that person, could be dead or alive, that you can't read in a book or watching a video. Mm. So that one's another one that comes to mind. So, the, and the follow up to that one is who is the most inspiring person that you want to meet? And what is the question that, that you want to ask? Right. That's another one. And uh, what are your next three goals? Right. That's another one. Like, what are the three biggest priorities in your life, rather? And why are they priorities to you? And why are they more important than every other priority in the list? And then mm. another one is Warren Buffett's focus framework, which ties into that, which is make a bucket list of 20 things, pick five of those things. What are those five things? Because that's all you'll have time to do in life to do. So those are some examples, man. You really put me on the spot. That, I love it. How, how many are we at? Like- <laughs> no, man. It's good. Good stuff, man. Why? Well, I, I have notes. You don't have notes. Oh, so, oh here's one. Here's one that I've never said on a show. Are you willing to manipulate people to get them to change? Mm, that's deep. Yeah. There's layers to that one. Well, and I don't know if you said this earlier or not, but I, one of the ones I love is what are you pretending not to know? Dissect that a little bit. Yeah, I did a training a, a year ago called Next Level Trainings. And I, and I sat there in the, in the first workshop. It was like day one of three. And I looked up and I saw this big pamphlet. It was like this big banner. And, and it read that question, what are you pretending not to know? So essentially what the question is about, at least my interpretation of it, there could be many, is this idea to always think about what are the parts of your psyche and the parts of your being that you're trying to hide from somebody else? So for example, and, and that the answer to that question, as you can probably guess, Billy, changes over the course of your life. Mm-hmm. So let's say when I was in my 10s, it was... 
uh, don't talk about your father. Like uh, I'm pretending not to know the fact that my father is having a much bigger influence in my life than I'm willing to admit. Mm. Right. So when most people go, oh yeah, you're so competitive. I go, yeah, yeah, I'm just a competitive person. What's your problem? Right. When it's actually not entirely that. There's and other then, things. Yeah. Right. There's other things. Or when I was in my early twenties, what are you pretending not to know that I had this amazing gift and I was too much of a wuss to share it because I wasn't good on camera. That was the real reason I struggled so much with mass talk at the beginning. Cause I was a wuss. Like I was one of the, like, honestly, like no, no filter here. I was one of the best speakers in the country and I still am, but I sucked on video and I didn't want the other people in my program to see how bad I was. It was like a humiliating thing. Even if it wasn't at the end, you know, I got better on that's one. And then a couple of years later, it was like, so today, if I were to answer that question, it would be not taking my business seriously enough. I focus too much on the allure of gaining more followers, even if that is my end game, because I want to impact people who can't afford me. But it's also important for me to think about building email lists and building a business out of this and sending an email to sell more coaching service, even if my business is doing fine. But it's that something that I'm not, I'm pretending not to know. Oh, let me just focus on doing a hundred podcasts a week. So to, to kind of, so that the answer is always going to change, but does that help? Kind of it like does, that? man. And we, and we all have those blind spots, by the way. So, I mean, talk about email list. I mean, I could go on and on about all the different things that I should be doing that I'm not doing. What these questions do though, and you highlight this, is they give you a sense and the ability to find your own perspective, to find your own unique point of view, to find your own belief system. So things like, what are you pretending not to know? Things like, what are some controversial things that you believe that other people doubt? I love that. What is the truth that you believe that most people disagree with? I'm not making this up. These are things that I've extracted through learning more about you and from you through all of the things that you're putting out into the universe, right? And so when you wake up in the morning and you ask that question that you talked about earlier, which is who in the world suffers by my inability to take action? And if you get really, really specific about who that person is so much to the point where you know their name, you know where they live, you know how it feels when you don't take action, then you are far more likely to take action because you don't want to hurt or compromise that person. I love all of those things. And the other thing is this idea of this controversial mindset. People are so afraid. They're so intimidated to go against the grain. They're so used to status quo that they avoid asking questions, make people perceive that they are in some way controversial. And what these types of questions do is they force your hand to think of things in a more controversial way. So speaking of controversial, some people think my old boss, Elon Musk, is a controversial figure that he's either loved and revered or... I think others, they're either jealous or they, for whatever reason, they have some sort of hatred towards him. But what you highlight is the difference between somebody like an Elon Musk, okay, the Elon Musk of the world, and those who sit on the couch watching Netflix all day is the people that are really successful ask questions. The other thing that you highlight is that people who are obsessed with who their customer is and, and who their customers are have a much higher likelihood of reaching unprecedented levels of success. So let's talk about an exercise that you have, which is this love letter exercise. Oh, that's good. Okay. So the love letter exercise is very simple. 
Billy, what you essentially do is you write a love letter to the person that you're doing this for. So the structure of the letter doesn't actually matter. It's not about starting this letter dear to this person, but rather just writing what you feel in the moment. And what this does is it creates a viscering emotional connection with that customer that allows you to figure out who you're doing this for. And I'm happy to use my own example to demonstrate this. So one day, I was probably six months into Mass Talk. Well, this is the point where I still thought it was a stupid idea. And I got invited to give a pro bono workshop for a leadership program for young girls. They were between the ages of like seven and 16 or something. So I was like, go to the workshop. And I meet this girl named Julia and a bunch of other girls like her. I'm just using an alias here. Let's just keep going. So I talked to Julia and I just go, you know, before breakfast, I like to talk to my audience kind of before the keynote starts. So I go, hey, I'm Brendan. What do you think about public speaking? She goes, oh, I don't, I don't like public public i don't like i don't like public speaking and i just went well why are you scared of public speaking she would go well you know i had to give all these classroom presentations it was in that moment billy that i understood why my work mattered the mistake that most people make billy when they start a podcast start a business start a youtube channel is when there's seven people watching them or three people buying from them i always ask them the same question and they always give me a terrible response which is out of those seven people how many of them have you had hour-long dinner conversations with? Mm. They always go, oh, like one. I go, seriously? Seven people are buying from you and you're not having one-hour discussions with each of them? And that's what happened with me. I talked to all of those girls, most of them, not all of them, but most. And I realized the key insight. I was doing the videos for her. And I'll explain it. Julia is 16 years old. She's in high school. She's a very bright kid. She's going to be very successful in life. She might be a lawyer, a doctor, an entrepreneur, a baker, whatever she wants to do. She's going to do extremely well at it, except one problem. She's scared of public speaking. So what does she do? That one moment of her life, she goes on YouTube because that's where she learns most of her things that she likes to learn. And one time, like that one smidge of life, she types the following words. Just out of curiosity, public speaking tips. Then she presses enter. And what does she find? She finds a bunch of old white dudes who don't know anything about public speaking. So she gets scared, closes her laptop, and her belief system that she'll never be a great speaker will live for the rest of her life unless I do something about it. The reason why I started Master Talk, regardless if I'm a seven-figure business owner, a nine-figure business owner, and it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I'm always making the videos for her because she's the person that needs me, and I'm the only person in the world who's making the videos for her. I am so crystal clear because I've met her and many people like her on that person that I become insane about my craft. That's why I write my content three years in advance. And now, you know, before COVID finishes, my goal is to write my next 10 years of content. I'm so obsessive because I'm worried that if I die next year for some random reason, I get into a car accident or something. There's literally nobody in the world, Billy, is going to share this stuff. So I need to do it. I'm curious about something because I really love this specificity that you have around who your YouTube viewer avatar is. Is your avatar for your customer, call it a customer that you coach or a customer that you in some way provide consulting services for? Because I know you've worked with 
children, you know, in that 16 age and maybe people in high school. And, and, and as you just said, even younger for an event like that. But I also know you work with founders and people in the tech startup base, executives. How do you reconcile those two camps? And are they two different things? I'm curious about that. Right. So, so a good way of explaining this, I think Seth puts it best, Seth Godin, in the terms of understanding psychographics instead of demographics. So what do I mean by that? I think the old school way of marketing is thinking about, and I'm using his words here, you know, 25 to 40 year old person. <laughs> it's just pretty useless. So I have the same psychographic as Seth, which is the following. Anybody who has an important idea to share that they want to share, that wants to make an impact, whether it's a, a nonprofit that they want to start or $50 that they want to raise, seven years old, seven years old, I don't really care. As long as there's someone who wants to make a positive difference in the world. But more specifically, I want to add, the videos are actually for the anti-customer. They're for the person who can't afford me. Mm, that's powerful, man. I love that. Right. So it's very, I actually just invented that on the spot. But but yeah. So yeah, oh, good. I'm glad we got something brand new, man. Because you've done like 800 podcasts. <laughs> oh my God. How am I, and I've listened to a good, good 20 of them. So I'm like, how can I find something unique? That's how I go to your CV. And I picked out some, some nuggets there. I don't know how often you talk about those things. But go ahead. I like the idea of an anti... Did you say anti-customer? What did you say? Yeah, anti-customer. Like, think of it like this. I, I think the difference between a business and a movement is a lot bigger than people think. Like, a business is me saying, okay, I have a bunch of executive clients. Let's say they pay me, I don't, I'll just throw a number here, 5K for a package. My goal is to make six figures then. Well, I get 20 people like you to pay me 5K and my year's done. I don't need to post on social media. I don't need to be on Instagram. I don't even need to be on podcasts, Billy. If my goal is a six-figure business, but what if the goal changed? What if the goal, instead of it being monetary, and monetary is important, but let's push this a bit further here. What if it's to get to every human being in the world who speaks English and can't afford speech coaching? What does that number look like? That's mm -hmm. in the millions. So even if I make $10 million an hour, I still have to keep posting the videos. That's why I always say, that the bigger the vision you have, the more generous you generally become because you're thinking about the bigger game here. You're thinking about the bigger picture of what you're trying to achieve. And I think Elon is the best example of that. And I try and do what he does. Obviously, I can't. <laughs> it's a big difference. But you know, still, I, I try and learn from it in the sense of you know, after he sold Zip2 and after he sold out or PayPal, he took every penny from that startup, every penny, and put it into SpaceX and Tesla. That is insane. That is borderline psychotically insane. Like it just makes no sense. Most people in that position, as Tim Urban explains very well, who's the founder of Wait But Why, well, most people just become angel investors. You know, they, they might start another venture, but they won't take too much risk. I mean, they, they have a net worth of $100 million. Why would you risk that? They could just coast, right? Right. And, and he risked the farm, like literally the farm. Most people risk their backyards. This guy risked the farm. And this is coming from someone who risks the backyard, right? So I have a lot of respect for people like Elon. But I think the point that I'm driving is when you're trying to build a movement, your metrics change very quickly. It changes from, oh man, I hope Billy pays me for the show to like, who gives a shit? I need to get on like a 10,000 of these things. So like, let's just keep rolling and let's just do like 20 of them because I see the longer play, which is after I die, people learn from me forever. So yeah, definitely the anti-customer. I'm making the videos for people who can't afford me. That's what really gets me going. It's a brilliant, brilliant concept. And it completely changes 
the perspective on how we approach whatever it is we are doing. And I really like the word that you use there, movement, because that's what you can create when you start to think big. Speaking of thinking big, part of thinking big, and you've highlighted this, is to focus on the winners. Because all too often, we get so immersed in the haters that are telling us all the reasons why we can't do something. Oh, why are you in public speaking? It's too narrow of a niche. Or it's you're not going to, how are you going to do a YouTube channel on that, right? There's all the haters out there. They're going to tell you a million and one reasons why whatever it is you're working on, and I'm, I'm picking on you because, because that's, what, that's what I'm here to do. You have said that you believe that there's so much opportunity within your niche, one. Two, you're focused, laser focused on the winners. And the winners are the anti-customers, the people that maybe can't afford to pay for your training, but you're democratizing this information and making it free for all of them. I'm wondering, when you say focus on the winners and when you hear me say it, what does that mean to you and how does it sit? Right. So- uh, I'll use Vinod here as an example. So Vinod Kosla, for those who don't know, is the founder of Sun Microsystems, very successful entrepreneur, investor, and he's a billionaire also, a very successful dude. And he once said in a Stanford interview that every decade, there are 10,000 people who will actually change the world. Right? And, and what he argues, and I agree with, is you don't need a lot of people to actually do, to move society forward. You need a small group of people who are just like completely maniacal. I made master talk for those 10,000 people. And Julia happens to be one of those 10,000 people. So in the sense that the only way to reach the geniuses of the world in our society, unfortunately, which I didn't like, but I had to soak up as the truth, is to be famous. It's just, there's just no other way around it. So for me, the, for me, the ideal goalpost, I would say the height of master talk, is when the next Elon Musk, whether it's a boy, a girl, wherever they live, grows up and says, oh, I'm a great communicator. I used to watch these videos from this dude and this channel named Mastruck when I was 12. And now I'm 36 and I'm running like $17 billion companies. And I wouldn't have done it without Brendan. Like that's that type of stuff that really excites me, that really gets me excited. Because it's unfortunate. I mean, I would coach Elon for free. It's just he just doesn't have time for it anymore. It's just not a nature. I'll give you another cross example that's coming in my head that I I don't think I've talked about. Uh, Michael Beckwith, for those who don't know, is like a spiritual teacher. He has this spiritual gathering in, in LA called Agape, where people come from around the world. And a lot of celebrities, I'm actually getting goosebumps saying this. Crazy. So a lot of celebrities like, come to this, this spiritual center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been to it, yeah. Oh, awesome. One of the most well-known, more well-known people who go there is Justin Bieber. So Justin, like- I know up, you're a Bieber fan too. That yeah, I do I'm know. a huge, huge Bieber fan. <laughs> and, and he went up to Michael once. And this is an interview with Lewis who's talking about it. And Michael and Justin came up to him and he said, you know how much you've influenced my life? And then Michael just looked at Justin Bieber and was like, how is this kid? How did I influence? Because there was no social media back then, right? And what Justin Bieber was telling him was when I was a kid, I used to listen to recordings of your tapes that my mother would give me. And he just looked at him and was like, oh, that's so amazing. It's like this impact that you, like he, he literally played a part, one of the geniuses of music, like one of the superstars because of that guy. I want to be that person for every human being in public speaking. I think that's just a beautiful, like I'm literally getting goosebumps when I'm saying this. Like it's such a beautiful mission to have, like just playing a part for the next generation of leaders and superstars. So when they look up to you, you can show them the right way to go. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. 
If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.